News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the Pope's visit continues this morning. He will be leaving Edmonton for Quebec City. So what is on the agenda and how different will it be from what we saw in Alberta? Joining us now for more on this is Braden Jagger of Global News. Braden, thanks so much for being here. Hi, thanks. No worries. So what is happening with the Pope today? What is this visit going to be like when he arrives in Quebec City? Well, I'm looking right now at the Plains of Abraham. This is a large green space. It's a historic site. This is where much of the viewing party events will be happening. The Pope is landing in Quebec City at around 3 o'clock, and then he's heading right to the Citadel, which is another historic site that's right beside the Plains of Abraham. That's where he'll be meeting Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, as well as the Governor General, Mary Simon. There will also be other uh, political officials and dignitaries that will be on site there. There will be a public address that will be done. This one's being said to be one that is going to be meant for all Canadians. That is what that public address is being said to be. And that will be in tandem with uh, the Governor General. And that will be presented on these large, massive screens. Think of a large concert venue. That is what it's looking out here. There are several large screens all on these planes. Tens of thousands of people are expected to be in appearance here this morning and this afternoon, including even into tomorrow, as there are several events planned throughout this time. This will be one where there will also be cultural festivities and displays of music and other festivities that will be on hand. And, of course, there's also a Pope-mobile ride at the end of today. That's when he'll be driving through the crowds, giving them a closer look at all of this event. And this is a highly anticipated event for many of the people here on display, many of them doing a pilgrimage themselves to come here. Okay, this sounds very different, Braden, than what we saw of the Pope's visit in the Edmonton area and in Alberta. It could be, in the sense that he will be having several events throughout Quebec City. There is another one tomorrow, and that will be more of a smaller one, relatively speaking. 10,000 people will be about 30 minutes away from where I am now in Quebec City, the downtown core. And there will also be another 2,000 people inside that basilica. It's a very historical site that is also one that is meant for pilgrimages. And this is one that you'll see many of the residential school survivors on site, many of those tickets that were reserved for them especially. And that's where we'll hear more of a private message on that front. Okay, so you mentioned how there's going to be a lot of people there. Is there a lot of anticipation in Quebec City for this? Like, how big are these crowds expected to be? Yeah, the the numbers can vary in the sense that the, the people surrounding the security is very tight already. But just looking at what we can see in a sense of, what is being put in place in, in uh, washrooms, uh, water fountains, uh, screens, space-wise. They say that there could be hundreds of thousands, even tens of thousands, depending on how many people show up. But they don't know exactly yet, officials, still working out how many people will be on the site. But this is a space that is so vast that it can hold that many people. And it is expected to be one that will have that many people here in attendance, with many people making that pilgrimage themselves. All right. Sounds interesting. All right, Braden. thank you. Thank you very much. All right, let's talk buying some tickets to go see a concert, shall we? Our Raji Sohal's with us this morning. And Raji, we just learned something very interesting this morning, didn't we? We sure did. We've learned many interesting things, I feel. We're only, uh, we've just gotten started here. I know. But I'm thinking about our tech producer here, Leonardo Coelho, who we found out 
is not only going to see Bruce Springsteen in Portland, but this morning he's trying to get tickets to see Bruce Springsteen in Seattle. Now, I don't know how much they're paying our tech producers here, but this guy is clearly shelling out some bucks for this. Yeah, I love finding out these secret tidbits about people that we work with because I had no idea that Leo was a super fan. Yeah, he's super fans are serious. Yeah, he's into it. Also, Billy Joel, like right now he's wearing a Billy Joel t-shirt. So he clearly loves his concerts. (laughs) But there's a lot of people who do like I think for people like Springsteen, artists like that, there are many people out there who make that pilgrimage no matter where he is or what he's doing to go and see him. But there's been a wrinkle in this kind of recently, hasn't there? There has, and this is not the kind of wrinkle you'd want to see with Springsteen because the boss is known for being like, you know, the the one of the people, the people, right? So apparently, if you want to see him play in the U.S., it could run you as much as four thousand dollars on Ticketmaster. I've been reading about this. This is the dynamic ticket pricing. And you know, this this is kind of the way that artists are combating scalpers, right? So years ago, I remember on my previous iteration of a show that I used to do here in the afternoons, I had Bruce Allen on. And I wanted to get him to explain to me what the deal is with like how you think that there's tickets available on Ticketmaster and then right away they're on some scalping website for way more money. How does that work? And he was telling me how for artists, how frustrating it is because they're not making money off that. So they're trying to keep their ticket prices low because they don't want to alienate their fans, but then somebody else is making a ton of money off of them. And so Ticketmaster has been introducing this dynamic ticket pricing with the cooperation of artists so that the artists can actually get some of that money. It's it's still scandalous to me. Like I would love to interview Bruce Springsteen and talk to him about what he thinks the peak should be. And I want to hear it from the horse's mouth about how much anyone, anybody should pay to go see a concert. I love music. That used to be my beat in journalism. I can't imagine spending that much money on any artist that I love. It's a principal thing. It's not even a matter of the fact that I'm uh, near broke or poor. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not spending that much money to see anybody. That's a good question, though. Diamond encrusted seat to sit in. (laughs) Only if you could take it home with you, right? Uh, I, I guess it would be a good question to ask people: What is the most that you would pay to go and see anybody? in concert, right? So they can email me, simi at cknw.com. Also interesting with this story, because boy, it was, everybody was talking about this the last couple of days, that the manager for Bruce Springsteen, that John Landau came out and said, listen, they, they let this go for a couple of days, but then he felt like he had to come out and say something in defense of the boss. And he said, it's only 11% of their tickets that they submit to this pricing scheme. And quite frankly, if people are going to pay it, then that's what those tickets are worth. The vast majority of tickets, they say, are still very reasonably priced. Yeah, you know, what I hate is that this has come to music in the way that it's come to music. Like some things should be, I don't know, sacred, keep them out of the whole supply and demand uh, kerfuffle like you have with hotel prices, right? You have this kind of surge pricing. You see it with uh, Uber and Lyft. You see it with airplane tickets. But like music, I just feel what they should do, Simi, is what they used to do in the 90s. Just there's a day, concert tickets are available. Everyone just tries. There's no like secret back past this. Or You're talking that. about lining up for tickets? 
I love that stuff. I really? love it. I would love to go old school with it. You know, you rearrange everything in order to make sure that you can get a ticket. And when you get one, it is like, get it's like Willy Wonka, the child, uh, or Charlie Chocolate. <laughs> so uh, twice in my life, twice in my life, I have lined up overnight, spent the night in a lineup. Yeah. Yes, that was it. Who was it for? The first one was. <laughs> I'm really I know, dating I'm myself. I know. The first one was for the Jacksons and their victory tour. Whoa. I know. This is when they came. Wow. This was the last tour that Michael Jackson did with his brothers. They came to BC Place. This was, what, I guess, 83, 84, like right around there. It was huge. The second one was for a concert tour that David Bowie was on and his opening act was Duran Duran. That oh, was 1987, that 88. Might have been right so around did there. Did you get tickets? Yeah, both times I got tickets. And it was worth it, right? Waiting in line overnight. It was all worth it. But you know what? That was also difficult because you could pay people to be in line for you or scalpers would stand in line because that was their living. That that wasn't any more fair or equitable. No. No. But you were more were you more pumped about it because you had to plan <laughs> and you had to rearrange things? Am I over romanticizing this? I really think you are. But you know what? We're all out of time, but this is a great discussion. So <laughs> let's continue to ask people their opinion on this. What is the most that you would pay? Do you think we should go back to Raji wants us to go back to standing in line for tickets? Simi at CKNW. All right, let's talk about Instagram because there's a very interesting kind of debate, kind of battle going on over the future of that very, very popular social media app. Joining us now is Mark Saltzman, syndicated columnist and technology expert. Good morning, Mark. Hey, good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here to explain this to us. Because so why are some of the biggest, biggest Instagram stars mad at, Amst- mad at Instagram? <laughs> well, let's just say Instagram seems to be having an identity crisis. They've made several changes to make it look and feel like TikTok of course, the latest social media darling. And so there's a growing revolt from some of the biggest names on Instagram, including Kim Kardashian, of course, Kyle Jenner, uh, influencer Tatiana Bruning. They're posting comments like, make Instagram Instagram again. Stop trying to be TikTok. I just want to see cute photos of my friends. Sincerely, everyone. (laughs) Yeah. And let's just talk about these names like Kim Kardashian, okay? 326 million followers on Instagram. By comparison, the most watched TV network in the US is CBS at 7 million viewers on average. So we're talking huge. So when you've got that kind of muscle behind this revolt, uh, uh, you know, which is again, targeting Instagram, trying to maybe change what they are in order to compete against TikTok, it's not sitting uh, well with not just those big names, but yeah. many other users as well. Yeah, you probably hear, I mean, I hear it from my friends all the time. Like I have some pull at Meta, the parent company at Instagram. <laughs> but you know, yeah, people don't like these changes. Mm. Well, and the, this has been effective before. You mentioned Kylie Jenner there. She's got 361, that's a huge number, 361 million Instagram followers. And a couple of years back, she did the same thing with Snapchat, right? Where she kind of voiced some yeah. complaints about Snapchat. And then look what happened. It gets the, the company's attention. Let's face it, we can complain, we can kick and scream all we want as regular users. And if there's enough of us, yeah, sure. Like, right, for example, there is a change.org petition right now that has nearly 200,000 signatures asking to undo these changes, right? There's even offline protests, believe it or not. Uh, on Saturday, a few dozen content creators picketed outside of Meta. Again, that's the parent company, formerly Facebook, uh, their New York headquarters. 
to protest. Uh, it was a bit huh. different. It was more about the community guidelines and some of the restrictions that content creators have who want to monetize their Instagram feed and less about the changes. But it, it, but when you've got those big names uh, posting things that everyone's going to see, again, when you're when you're talking about a third of a billion followers on that platform, the company's going to take notice. And they've made comments. And don't forget today, later today, their parent company is going to report quarterly results, right? So there's all eyes are on yeah. are, are on revenue as well. If you're an investor or shareholder, right, of uh, Instagram. So, but if yeah. you're on Instagram, then I guess the message that they you've received from the company is they're not going to change. Like you may like going to Instagram just to look at pictures, but they yeah. truly believe that the future is video. The company says, and I quote, they're experimenting with a number of different changes to the app and we're hearing a lot of those concerns from all of you. So, and, and what what are those, by the way, it would be remiss if we just didn't quickly acknowledge that. It, things like a full screen feed, so it scrolls like TikTok. A lot of people don't like that. Uh, they don't like that. Um, the way Instagram used to work is that it was filled with people that you know or brands that you choose to follow. But now with that, the algorithm behind the scenes, they're throwing things at you like TikTok does, uh, people you may not follow. And people are saying, I don't want this in my feed. I'm choosing who to follow. There's also uh, what's going to launch soon is this remix feature, they call it, which is just like TikTok's duet feature where people can make you know response videos side by side with the original. So th- right. this is, again, clearly influenced by TikTok. Um, but uh, yeah, the company does acknowledge that not everyone is going to like it. But uh, they say that this is, you know, in flux. We are we we are an evolving platform. Hmm. Is this just that we don't like change, Mark? Is that really what it comes down to? Yeah, perhaps. But again, if you do get used to a platform and you invest a lot of time in there, you some changes is understandable. Facebook users have seen this, uh, you know, since two thousand and four as well. Uh, you know, and Instagram is still the biggest, by the way, with over a billion monthly active users, uh, and that's uh, as of last year, anyways. But TikTok has grown the fastest. So it clearly poses a threat to Meta. And, and they, you know, if you can't beat them, join them maybe, but they're still beating them. But I think that they're just trying to, just like they're doing by evolving Facebook into this metaverse company, this, you know, this 3D right. virtual reality like uh, universe instead of a 2D social media feed. Um, maybe they're trying to get ahead of it and they're just trying to stay relevant. But yeah, people don't like change. I guess that's fair. Mm-hmm. Don't get me started on the metaverse stuff. All right, Mark, thank you so much for your time on that this morning pleasure, Simi. Have a great... Well, who knew what and when did they know it? That was the topic of testimony at the House of Commons Heritage Committee yesterday. It was all about Hockey Canada and the sexual assault allegations from 2018. Turns out some people in Ottawa at Sport Canada in particular did know. So what happened at that point? Well, Peter Julian is the NDP MP for New Westminster and is on the Heritage Committee that has been asking questions. He heard that testimony yesterday and he joins us now. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. What did you think about what you heard yesterday? Uh, I was profoundly disappointed. Uh, what we've seen is with Hockey Canada, of course, uh, a, a, a refusal to really make the changes that are necessary to uh, stop uh, there from being further victims. And we've heard about the 2018 uh, allegations of horrific sexual assault. We now know uh, that there is evidence around horrific sexual assault allegations. The 2003 uh, World Hockey Championship. Uh, the, these uh, these are happening with a, a frequency. I think the Canadians uh, find profoundly disturbing. And yet, Sports Canada, who is the governing body 
that, that covers all of the national sports organizations really did, has done nothing, continued to provide funding uh, for Hockey Canada, as they have for other sports organizations uh, that have also let, let down both athlete victims and, and victims from the public. And so we, we really need to see a sea change now uh, so that we can have safe sports where athletes uh, don't have to uh, worry or have the, uh, the concern about becoming victims and the general public as well can feel that they uh, don't have to be concerned about becoming victims. And our sports organizations, including Sports Canada, I think have let Canadians down. Yeah, let's talk about that aspect of the story because that was really new uh, yesterday. So Hockey Canada says they told Sport Canada about the allegations in 2018. Sports Canada did not tell the minister and also, what, didn't follow up for four years? They just uh, put it in as statistics, and uh, the head of Sports Canada basically said, well, you know, we, we keep the statistics, we're not supposed to do more. Uh, that is fundamentally untrue, because of course we know Sports Canada funds all of these organizations, and when you have a situation where there are horrific allegations of sexual violence, uh, the, the Sports Canada has a responsibility to say to those organizations, you have to make sure that there are no further victims. You have to carefully adhere to best practices. And if you don't do that, you won't be funded. What, what it turns out Sports Canada has done is nothing over the years, and including uh, dating back to uh, reforms that were supposed to have been put into place after the revelations of Sheldon Kennedy and the sexual abuse that he suffered. Uh, there were supposed to be reforms put into place for every single national sports organization. It turns out that Sports Canada has never verified any of the facts in that, never done any real follow-up, continues to fund sports organizations regardless of, of what extent they're actually trying to stop sexual abuse or sexual violence or, or whether they're just allowing uh, things to continue. There has been no crackdown from Sports Canada, and that has let victims down right across the country, including many victims who are athletes. Is it fair to say now uh, that this has expanded, right? Before we were focused on the, the organization of Hockey Canada and how they had handled this, and now there's just more questions. Uh, there, there are more questions, but there's also more imperative to act. Uh, it, it's, not, it's no longer a question of pretty words. Uh, there needs to be strong action taken, and Hockey Canada will be coming uh, in a few hours uh, before the, our, our committee. Uh, they will be uh, obliged to answer questions. They stonewalled us a few weeks ago, and since then, of course, there have been a number of other revelations, including the horrific sexual assault allegations from 2003. Sponsors have withdrawn from Hockey Canada. Uh, a number of very prominent Canadians in the hockey world, like the Canadian Women's Olympic team and Sheldon Kennedy and others, have, have, have uh, decried Hockey Canada's lack of action. And the Canadian public, I think, has completely lost confidence in Hockey Canada. So Hockey Canada has to come clean in a few hours' time. And I, I think it's fair to say this, this is really their last chance to show Canadians they take the issues of sexual violence and sexual abuse seriously. Is there, is there a consensus on that on this committee? Because I know the committee is made up of all parties involved here, and it just seems like everybody is quite united on this one. Oh, and the Canadian public, too. I, I think all, all political parties uh, combined, the Canadian public. Uh, I was in Westminster Burnaby for the last month after Parliament rose uh, a month ago, and uh, everyone I spoke to 
in my riding, uh, was very concerned about the degree to which uh, sports organizations have allowed uh, issues of sexual violence and, and sexual abuse uh, to, to fester, and that the federal government has done nothing to compel organizations to put in place safe practices, best practices, measures to stop sexual violence and sexual abuse. Uh, these are concerning to all Canadians. So I, I think today Hockey Canada will be in the, in, uh, in the spotlight and they'll have to respond truthfully and honestly, stop stonewalling, come clean with the Canadian public. But the federal government has responsibility now to take action, not just to, to have pretty words, but to actually fundamentally take action so that uh, the issues of sexual abuse and sexual violence in our sports organizations across the country uh, become uh, hopefully just a, a memory, a sad memory, and that we, we can put our athletes and, and Canadian parents can put their, uh, their daughters and sons into sports programs with, with no concerns because we know that the measures have been taken to curtail these abuses. Now, yesterday, we also heard some powerful words from Sheldon Kennedy, himself an abuse survivor, saying that it was time for wholesale change at Hockey Canada. Everybody should be moved out. New people should be brought in. Is that something that you would support? Uh, I, I think the, the toxic level of, uh, of culture within Hockey Canada uh, goes beyond the people that are there now. Uh, there needs to be a wholesale change, but it, it, it's very much starting uh, from the practices that the federal government put, put in place and ensuring that there's no longer uh, this money flow from the federal government to Hockey Canada with impunity. Uh, but that's my greatest concern. We change the toxic culture uh, and make sure uh, that whoever is in place in Hockey Canada, they are compelled to follow best practices and put in measures to stop sexual violence and sexual abuse before it happens. I look forward to hearing more of that testimony today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Well, the cruise ship industry pumps millions of dollars into our economy here in British Columbia, whether it's Vancouver or Victoria. We certainly heard and talked during the pandemic about the losses that so many businesses were suffering because of, of a lack of cruise ships and the tourists that they bring. But you know what? There's another side to the cruise ship industry too, and that is the environmental impact of having that many huge ships in our waters. A report from a group called Stand Earth and West Coast Environmental Law says that because of lax regulations, cruise ships heading to Alaska from the U.S. are discharging billions of liters of waste into Canadian waters every year. Joining us now is Anna Barford, a Canadian shipping campaigner with Stand Earth. Anna, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So how did you determine this? Like, what, what did you look into here? So we have a number of reports about a few years before us, but the big thing that we looked into was just the laws. Uh, we looked at what the regulations were in Washington State, in the U.S. under the EPA, and uh, in Alaska. And what we found is that Canada's are the low watermark. Uh, there's this perverse incentive for cruise ships to treat us like the toilet bowl because we're simply not protecting ourselves. Okay, in what way? What kind of rules don't we have that they have? Uh, dumping rules, uh, pollution standards, treatment requirements. Uh, let me elaborate. So in Puget Sound, uh, there's a no discharge zone. A ship, uh, any ship, a cruise ship or fishing vessel or just a small pleasure craft, can't legally release sewage, treated or untreated, into those waters. So they have to hold it until they get outside of that jurisdiction um, or get to land to pump it out. Well, outside of that jurisdiction, that's Canadian waters. That's the Canadian portion of the Salish Sea. Uh, and on the other side, on Alaska, there are 
stringent regulations about uh, pollution limits for pathogens, uh, as well as just uh, total solids. So kind of that gray pollution that we see that limit what cruise ships can uh, release and really force them to either pump it out on land to a certified treatment plant um, or to maintain treatment facilities on board so they can release much cleaner waste into their water. Uh, Canada just simply isn't measuring up in terms of those ways. We're very trusting of the industry and we allow pollution that is 18 times more uh, pathogen intense than Alaska. It's 18 times more contaminated. So then what's happening as a result of that, Anna? So are cruise ships like just doing it as much as they can because they figure, hey, Canada has no rules? I mean, cruise ships are corporations. They're organizations that are built for profit. Uh, You tell me what they're doing. I think that they're looking for how they can maneuver, particularly in a post-COVID world um, that they're operating in. Uh, They're looking for what ways that they can cut their costs. Uh, Canada Toilet Bowl seems like the perfect place for them to do that. Okay, Unfortunately, that comes at the expense of us. Right. And I know this this report has definitely been generating a lot of discussion. So what has happened as, as a result? What kind of reaction are you getting? Uh, so legally, nothing has changed for cruise ships. Uh, in April, the Transport Canada brought in voluntary measures, uh, but they don't address internal seas. You know, Canada has two incredible internal seas on on this side of the wa- on the side of the coast where we have the Great Bear Sea and the Salish Sea that are rich and thriving and full of endangered species and important salmon runs. Uh, they're donut holes. So in the middle of them, there's uh, giant toilet bowls where the rules simply don't apply. Uh, the new measures do not do anything for protected areas, uh, and they're voluntary. You know, we know that cruise ships are under a lot of stress right now. We know also that they are multiple-time U.S. federal felons for environmental crimes. Uh, so we're this is a group that we're really going to need to bring enforcement, bring strict regulations to ensure that they're doing what we tell them they absolutely need to do. Right. Anna, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, three years ago, the Ombudsperson for BC came out with a report, and this report had recommendations to help protect the legal rights of people who have been involuntarily admitted to psychiatric facilities in this province. So three years later, you would think, okay, these are pretty important recommendations. What's been done as a result? Turns out, not enough. Joining us now is Jay Chalk, the Ombudsperson for BC. Thank you for being here. Hey, good morning, Simi. Let's go back to the original report that you did here. Why was it necessary? What's been going on? Well, um, in our work, we received complaints from uh, members of the public, and we, over, over many years, we'd received complaints from uh, people who are involuntary patients of uh, psychiatric facilities. Uh, that means that under the Mental Health Act, uh, they had been committed against their will into a locked facility. Uh, and uh, when that happens, there are about a half a dozen things that are supposed to, you're supposed to be told about and notices you're supposed to receive in order to protect your civil rights and mine because ordinarily we're at liberty, but if uh, the state is going to put us in a locked facility, the legislature said you can only do that uh, if you do certain things. And um, so we were, had been receiving complaints, but we really wanted to step back and take a, a bigger systemic look. So in 2019, we looked at every admission in British Columbia over a one-month period. That's 1,500 admissions. And we looked at whether those six things had happened, so six times 1,500, about 10,000 data points, 
to determine whether people were receiving their rights advice, uh, notice to relatives, um, uh, being uh, advised about uh, what rights they did have and didn't have with respect to consent to treatment uh, and the like. And we found that uh, those rights are being complied with just 28% of the time. So pretty serious uh, failure on, uh, by our uh, mental health system. So we mm-hmm. made a number of recommendations for them to uh, bring it into line. That is a shockingly low number. So these are legally, like legal obligations that that the system has that were only being completed 28% of the time. So when you checked in three years later, what kind of improvement was there? Right. So once we issue a report, we, uh, and, uh, and, and, in my line of work, we're making recommendations. It's up to public authorities to decide whether or not they accept them. But if they do accept them, then we start monitoring to make sure that um, they really do what they say, right? That if they promise the public that they're going to an implement, implement an ombudsperson recommendation, that uh, we want to make sure that really happens. And it isn't just a way of managing a report release, you know, in their response to us and saying, sure, we're going to do it. Uh, we want to make sure that that promise is real. So we begin monitoring and we collect information from uh, authorities about the steps they've taken. And we then assess, uh, in our opinion, as to whether or not uh, the authorities have done this. So our recommendations spanned all six health authorities, a number of government ministries and other bodies. So there were a lot. It was a complicated, uh, complex set of recommendations. But uh, uh, we set out to look at all 24 recommendations that have been accepted. And after three years, uh, the scorecard was that uh, full implementation had only happened in a third or eight of the recommendations. Wow. Okay. So now you're up to the number, what, 42%. So from 28% of the time it was being done, now it's what, 42% being done. Correct. So the 42% is um, an assessment by the health authorities themselves. And that reflects a good thing that they've done, which is that one of our recommendations was that uh, they start auditing their own performance because it was quite apparent to us in our 2019 recommendations that um, health authorities and psychiatric facilities had never kept an eye on this. Uh, when we asked for the records, it, they were not uh, uh, collected and uh, collated in a place that was together. They were often individual patient records. So no one had been really keeping an eye on this problem. So we said, uh, this is your legal responsibility. You need to be managing this. So uh, we did recommend a, a program of auditing, and that has happened. And um, so that's one of the recommendations that uh, was complete, and that's why health authorities were able to report uh, their compliance. However, uh, the compliance that was reported uh, uh, is uh, not great. Uh, it's up from where we found it three years ago, but uh, not where it should be. It, you know, these are legal requirements under the Mental Health Act, and it's time mental health facilities started complying with the law all the time rather than sometimes. Oh, I think everybody would agree with you because the idea of involuntarily holding somebody in a psychiatric you know, institution Taking away the right of that person, obviously, that's a very serious situation. So, yeah, they should have to explain that in a fulsome manner. The report originally also found that what some facilities were just kind of using rubber stamps to authorize treatment, like they weren't really describing what kind of treatment was being proposed here. Yeah, that's a really important finding. Um, So uh, we all have the right to... uh, uh, consent or refuse consent uh, to treatment. There are special rules for involuntary patients where they have limited rights to refuse treatment, uh, uh, and that can be overridden by uh, the director of the mental health facility. But they do um, uh, have to ask first the patient whether they're uh, consenting to treatment. But what they had done uh, in some psychiatric facilities was replace uh, 
an informed consent, a discussion between uh, the doctor and the patient, uh, literally with a form with a rubber stamp on it. So imagine, Timmy, you go to the doctor and they basically don't tell you what the treatment is. They just uh, say um, that uh, uh, they ask you whether or not you're going to consent to any treatment. Uh, and if you refuse, then someone else is going to decide that for you. And that's literally any uh, treatment that would have, would have been authorized. So these rubber stamps were incredibly broad. So we recommended that their use be terminated and that it be replaced by individualized consent. Uh, and so that is another one of the uh, uh, steps that has been taken. And uh, so I'm pleased to see that. Yeah, that is a good one. Okay. So does this also tell you then, Jay, that this is clearly something you need to continue to follow up on because not enough is being done? You bet. And uh, so we always continue uh, uh, to monitor for at least five years after our reports. Uh, uh, if things get done, if everything gets done before then, then uh, uh, we can move on to other things. Uh, but uh, uh, I think it's critically important that, uh, you know, that we do hold the feet uh, to the fire to make sure that where public bodies agree with our recommendations and commit to implementing them, that they really do that. And probably the, the biggest uh, area that uh, we made recommendations about was the creation for British Columbia of a service that exists in most provinces in Canada, uh, a system of independent rights advisors. So when someone is admitted as an involuntary patient, they have an independent person not connected with the facility who will sit down with them and tell them what their rights are and make sure that they uh, their questions are answered. And if the person says, well, I'd like to get a lawyer, they can facilitate that or connect them with legal aid, for example. So we recommended that legislation be uh, introduced to create uh, a rights advisor service and that that legislation be introduced back in uh, the end of the fall session in 2019. Took uh, uh, two and a half years later, uh, it was only the spring of this year, but uh, uh, to the Attorney General's credit, uh, that uh, legislation was introduced and to the legislature's credit, passed. And so now that uh, rights advisor service uh, legislation has passed, but not yet enforced. If it had happened in 2019, we'd have it by now. Uh, but what, uh, at least we're on the road, and that's good. And so I'm really urging government to continue to work uh, expeditiously towards implementing that independent rights advisor service so that people who are involuntarily detained know what their rights are and how to exercise them. And it seems like such a basic thing. We'll have to keep up on this, too. Thank you so much for your time this morning. You bet, Simi. Well, we've seen Ukrainian Canadians, we've seen Ukrainians really from all over the world coming together to help those in Ukraine. Now, one group has organized around kind of art and culture as a way to raise awareness and some much needed money to help children in Ukraine. For more on that, we're joined by our Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, there's this excellent event going on today in Gastown. It's at an event space called also the Kent. It's on Canby. So it's an art show. And the works that are hung there are all by Ukrainian artists who are part of a collective that's originally from Kiev. They've been active for a lot of years, but recently they turned their talents to making work about the war and its impact on people who live there. And some Canadians took note of what they were doing and they formed this group in Canada. It's uh, called called the Ukrainian Canadian Advocacy Group. It's uh, it's run from coast to coast. There's people part of that group from Vancouver and their objective in fundraising it's different than other groups. They believe that they should be using art and culture as a way to bring awareness to what's going on in Ukraine and help fundraise. And then they're also doing something else different. And that is that they are not just uh, pooling money together and sending it to the Red Cross, for example. They've chosen a niche group to help. And that is children who have been 
orphaned by the war. And they even visited the Ukraine themselves. They saw uh, in the last month what it's like for those kids. So they went back to this art collective in Ukraine and they said, hey, let's create this touring exhibition of art that deals with the war. We'll use it to raise funds and then we can use those funds to help kids, uh, kids that are children of the war and put them into a rehabilitation program that will uh, help them uh, with physical stuff, but also emotional, psychological uh, things like the trauma that they've had to experience. And the artwork itself is, it's about war, Simi, but it's still, it's really beautiful. And one of the reasons is they just felt that beauty was one of the sharpest tools in as a way of getting people to pay attention because we get so inundated with the news and the images of war and one day bleeds into the next and people have lost count even of how many days this war has gone on for. I know at the beginning, Simi, when we were hearing that, oh, it's day three of the war or day five of the war, uh, it still had so much impact for people, but now it's just been months and months of this. So I talked to Sophia. She's a part of this advocacy group. And uh, she told me that they are hoping that people are going to show up today and pay attention because the the art is use, is the vehicle to make them pay attention. Here's Sophia Kominko, the curator of War and Living Color. I tried to uh, focus on the stories that I know and on the scenes that are very familiar. So I myself am Ukrainian. I have family in Ukraine. I have friends in Ukraine. And um, for me, that personal connection uh, with that experience, I mean, it's present from day one, but really it's, you know, it's the stories that I heard or one piece that really stood out to me was like a piece about this multi-generational family hiding in the bomb shelter. And I have a multi-generational family and it's just, and there's, uh, there's a series of these pieces from the artist Yulia Tvertina. Uh, almost like a Van Gogh painting. Like this artist focused a lot about, on uh, the theme of evacuation. So one of her pieces, she's um, depicting a woman who is sitting in the car, and you could see in the rearview mirror that she has a child in the back seat, and then like a puppy, and you could also see the windshield and what she's looking at. And really, it's just these bright colors, and you could see things flying, and and you know, bombs exploding as she's driving and trying to get away. And these are the scenes that we know were happening on the outskirts of Kiev and places like Bucha and Irpin as people were trying to leave and they were being shot at. But what was very interesting about this particular piece is that it was bright pink. It was this like bright pink fuchsia color. And from afar, it just looks so, you know, vibrant and, and some like really just not about the war until you come close and you see what's going on. And I think, what stood out to me about that piece is is the emotion and the use of the color to to portray kind of you know to portray some of a very very scary moment and that is so lovely though that they have this outlet and they understand this outlet raji yeah, and that this is the way that so many people are, so many artists are expressing themselves too. Uh, going through this uh, this war with uh, Russia and UK, Ukraine, they are uh, expressing themselves artistically, and the hope is that people will, you know, linger in front of these artworks at the one day only pop up exhibit today 
and feel the impact uh, more than just, you know, when you're scrolling the news online and you see these war images, Simi, like one just becomes the next and you don't differentiate. But sometimes an artwork will make you really pay attention. Here's Olga Prodan. She's a co-founder of the Ukrainian Advocacy, Canadian Advocacy Group. And she has high hopes that this art exhibit will make people stop and pay attention. Uh, I have high hopes that Canadian society will s- support us. These kids, they cannot spoke for themselves. That's why we have to be loud and turn all the attention to these kids as well. It's 151 days till war started. And believe me, it's not only for Canadians surprise, but for all Ukrainians, as all my family in Ukraine. We will never surrender, so we will fight till we win and like i have high hopes and i know we will build rebuild our country again people from all the countries support our military incredibly hard so people take their own money their own funds and they support the army buying them helmets buying them night vision buying them whatever they need even cars so our society 98 percent support our government right now and we are one team and that's why together we stand and that's why we are able to hold so long for 151 days extremely high price are already paid i know if we will surrender our country if we will just say, okay, okay, whatever you want, you take, it will be even worse. It will be more uh, orphaned kids. It will be more dead civilians. So it will only lead to more deaths in our country. That's why we have to win. And that's why we have to really get all the support from free world because Ukraine representing freedom right now. You know, my heart just breaks hearing that too, Raji, because I wonder, do you think, are people not paying as much attention anymore? It seems like there was so much outrage and the world really kind of united at the beginning, but now it's still going on and it must be a fight to make people say, hey, this is still going on. Yeah, absolutely. It's a fight to make people notice. I think there was a period where people felt so helpless around the world, non-Ukrainians too, and uh, they just stopped paying attention. And so uh, for Ukrainians uh, that live elsewhere, that is really frustrating as they are still riveted by the news, still watching it very closely and carefully and trying to reach family members and uh, worried about what the future holds. But you heard Olga speak there about the resilience of the Ukrainian community and how um, unwilling they are to even consider surrendering to the the Russians in any way whatsoever. They believe in uh, going with this fight for as long as possible and, and fighting for their freedom. All right. There's a lot uh, still to come on that story. Now, and so that event is happening tonight? Yeah, so it's tonight. It's called War in Living Color. It's a pop-up exhibit. People can go during the afternoon after 12 noon and just view. But then at night, there's going to be a fun reception. There's going to be music and dancing. And at that point, you can also uh, maybe take longer time to enjoy the works. Take your time with the pieces. All right. Sounds good. Thank you for that. Thanks.